All right. We're going to pull this thing off? Yeah. All right. We've got uh, all the challenges have been beset before us and bested. We have all the technology. Know how. God is our co-pilot. The will. You ever get the feeling that everything in America is completely fucked up? You know that feeling that the whole country is like one inch away from saying, that's it. Forget it. Let's see. Thanks, Mr. Uh, now look, here's a house full of bees. Like you think the honey badger cares? It doesn't give a shit. Listen, let's get one thing straight. Price is right. Guns don't kill people. I do. That's a great song. That was chosen by Kelly, who is not... Where is he? Uh, Arizona. Arizona. For what? Is it a wedding? Is he? I feel like he goes to a higher than average normal uh, than normal people weddings. You think that's doing life right or no. not? <laughs> no. I fight tooth and nail to get out of those kinds of things. Yeah, it's been a very long time since I've been invited to a wedding, and I'm probably... I'm, I mean... Yes, and that's because all my friends are either married or have no shot. <laughs> What's the threshold at which point you're like, I just, I'm going to throw in the towel at this point? Hmm. See, I've been to Thailand. I've seen some odd couplings. Uh, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on it? Let's say wake up fresh tomorrow. <clears throat> No, by fresh, I mean, I mean, obviously single. Um, uh -huh. You jumping back in the pool? No. no. Why? Um, man, that's a good question. I was not ready for that. God, uh, in the bangers. I don't know. It just seems like a lot of work. That's what I. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I already have my like routine established with my partner for life. Yeah. It's like, to, and it takes years and years and years to build. At this point, I'd probably just. I don't know, pick up like an opiate addiction and just start partying. Hmm. Or get into a, get one of those squirrel suits, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Kelly is... That was Susie and the Banshees, by the way. I believe that song's called Cities of Dust, Cities in the Dust. That's actually about uh, the eruption in Pompeii, which I believe was AD 79, something like that. And one of the most preserved, well-preserved volcanic eruption sites. Have you ever seen the pictures of that? Perfect, perfectly pres preserved bodies, like, laying on the floor with their kids and, like, just made out of, like, ash and stone. It's what crazy. About, what about this guy that was in a... 
Oh, wow. What's that from? I think he was. That's from Pompeii. That's Pompeii. Yeah. yeah. Look at that. What was he doing, you think, there? He's probably in some rich guy's living room <laughs> now. <laughs> I mean, same kind of guy that goes to Thailand a lot. I think he was in a state of gratification. <laughs> yeah, some of those are wild. Do yourself a favor. Google uh, Pompeii, <laughs> what'd you call them? Bodies? Pretty interesting stuff. Dust mummies? So, Kelly's in Arizona, sent us some stuff to discuss, to look at. We were going to, yeah, do this remote and in true Liberty Tree fashion. We had a uh, two-hour calamity of technological errors, so we threw in the towel. So we're going to do it without them. Did you... I'm gonna take you got something you want to bring up? No, I'm I'm with you. We're gonna do you. Okay. Take this ride with me. Because I had something like a fairly benign occurrence happen to me. And so you know, I don't know. I'm sure, I think Kelly knows about this. I had a I don't know, semi-serious staph infection in my hand, which ended up me waking up one morning and like, I gotta go to the hospital. And so my appointment was later, so I'm like, this this will be a good day to just get all the shit done that I just keep kicking the can down the road like getting your oil changed and paying bills and stuff like that. And I had this like fairly middle of the road thing, but it had me thinking like all day because later in the doctor's office, I'm just sitting there and this thing had been kicking around my head forever. I'm going to lay out a few things. You can tell me if I'm like out in the weeds, but so I go to get my oil changed. I go to the same spot all the time. They, uh, they're super good at the job. They're super quick. And I go to the same place all the time and, they got it done in like seven minutes or something like that. And then they go to the end of the bay and they kind of wave you out. They're like, okay, you're done now. And I was surprised. I was like, wow, that was, that was pretty quick. And I rolled my window down. <clears throat> the guy comes around. He goes, all right, have a good day. See ya. I'm like, hey, uh, you guys never charged me. The guy goes, oh, like, I'm super sorry about that. I'm like, no worries. I get my card. And I look at my rearview mirror and he's talking to someone who I guess was a supervisor. And then the supervisor comes up and goes, hey, just want to let you know, like, we really appreciate you, you know, basically being honest and paying, you know, because I could have just driven out of there. And I made a comment to the guy. I just said, ah, yeah, no worries. Like, you got to do the right thing. And I kind of waved my arm up. I'm like, otherwise, this whole thing falls apart, right? <laughs> you know, if I just drive off. And and uh, he kind of looked at me kind of confused. And he kind of like nodded like, yeah, like kind of I didn't really think about it like that. And I didn't think much about it because we all have that like split second thing where, <clears throat> you know, for like a quarter of a second, I'm like, I could just drive out of here. And I just saved 160 bucks. And it's just like your brain shuts it down. Like, ah, don't do that. Don't be an asshole. And so I started thinking about like why, because now I'm like up in my head <laughs> driving around doing errands. Like, what is that thing in your brain? It's like, just you, you want to like do the right thing, right? And I was like, no, it's more than that. You can't, you can't just wave away human psychology with a convenient phrase like that. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So I start thinking, is that what would be, because not everyone's going to do that. There are a lot of people that are just like, dude, sweet. And they're just going to drive out of there, right? $160 richer or whatever it is. Or there's people that like... <laughs> I'm going to do the right thing, but it's going to take me, uh, whatever, like a minute to kind of mull it over, whatever. There might be the kind of person that goes like, oh, I'm out of here and gets a kind of moment of moral clarity and goes like, I'm going to go back there and pay. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to carry that around for you know, the rest of the day or whatever. 
And so what would be in your mind? So there's the people that would argue like, why don't you just drive off? You would save 160 bucks. And so you would respond to that. You'd be like, well, I just, I want to do the right thing. Like what would be their response? Like what would be the reason? Like, just drive off. It doesn't matter. I feel like there's a bit of a spectrum here. You know, I, yeah. let's say you're at a giant chain store and exactly. nobody can even get to you to take your money because the line is so long, they're understaffed. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the management structure is so large and so exactly like it's almost like a bureaucracy at this point where something's not working. Everybody's there to do something. And the part where they're supposed to service you is broken down. I've walked out of a number of large corporations mm-hmm. with, you know, less than $10 worth of goods mm-hmm. just because I couldn't get to the register and said, right. fuck it. So I, on one side of the coin, I'm that guy. I think there's another part. Well, there's a, there's a part to part and parcel to what you're saying is like, listen, if you guys can't do your job, then I eventually need to get on with my day here. Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, it kind of reminds me of this, uh, the shopping cart test here where it's like, this is the only true measure whereby we can grade ourselves as a society is there are the people that will, and there are the people that will not return the carpet, the shopping cart to its little vestibule. Oh, that's such a great litmus test for what we're talking about. That's a, yeah. So, um, it's kind of that, you know, you want to be a good person. You want to, you want to leave a place better than at least as good, if not better than it was when you got there for the sake of, um, not being a part of some very small societal breakdown. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of the coin, it's, uh, you know, we're up against challenges. You know, I, I went to Home Depot yesterday to get a Christmas tree. And uh, uh, was that fun? Know, this was not my plan. I was it wasn't your ride, plan. <laughs> but, you know, there's nobody at this little uh, sh- Christmas tree space in the parking lot that mm-hmm. they've set up. Nobody there that works there. And uh, you just grab a tree and I guess you're supposed to hike it inside and see that's just a bad business carry a tree around and i just grab this tree i'm like well i'm picking it up once i'm not pick i'm not hiking this thing around i pick it up and i take it in my car and i throw it in there and uh my partner ends up you know needing a christmas tree stand as well so uh she goes inside and pays for the tree pays Mm -hmm. for the stand meanwhile i'm just like this is this is home depot like uh, you know this this is this tree is going to end up in a dumpster Day mm-hmm. after tomorrow, if we don't do this now, anyways, I'm walking out of that trip, walking out of there with, there with a tree, yeah. I'm, I'd be saving them money somehow. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> justifying all this, uh, but on the other, on it's your raining rationalizations right now, <laughs> you know. But you got a kid there that's got a job to fill the oil and tighten it back up, not break your car, do some stuff. Right? They stand to bear some sort of um, jeopardy for their role or their job if they mess up something and that could include you know not getting this paid and this is probably not a giant like organization Mm -hmm. where you just slip through the cracks ultimately they're gonna there's gonna be somebody that comes back and says well what happened johnny wasn't doing his job or something you got the manager out there personally thanking you yeah uh different situation altogether so that's what i think i mean by that spectrum a little bit this is this is great because you're actually uh paving the way for what you're exactly where my brain was going because i'm like the argument against that would or the argument for just leaving would say like listen it's some company there's not a lot of like independent oil change places is uh, like a Chevron pit stop or whatever it is, you know, and it's owned by this other big company 
who's owned by a corporation, who's owned by a multinational corporation, who's not going through the books and saying like, hey, we're missing $160 from this podunk oil stop place in Northern California. They don't care. They're not going to, you know, it's just called shortage with their business model. It's just like a certain amount of money we just lose, which would be the argument for just leaving. But I also thought about is that you talked about the guy that worked there. And that's where my brain went. Now I'm on like hour two of like thinking about this. I'm like, what what would exactly be the right thing? So I'm like, so let's say you decide to drive off and I just saved, I'm using my finger quotes there, stole $160. And the 20 something year old whose responsibility it was to run my card gets called into the manager's office, right? And he goes, look, I got to write you up. And these guys hustle, like they're, they're good at their job, you know what I mean? And, but I'm guessing not to disparage this place is they're not rolling in money. He's probably living paycheck to paycheck, you know, trying to make ends meet, you know, after taxes. And here he is like busting his ass and he leaves work that day with the feeling of getting written up. You know, it's like, I'm busting my ass for this place. I'm barely making any money. And I'm leaving here with like, uh, like kind of a shitty feeling, right? I got written up and, you know, if you get... I'm on some kind of, let's say, workplace probation or whatever. Or maybe he, like, <clears throat> was five minutes late the week before and got written up. And the manager, he, this happens, and the manager goes, like, look, you know, what, his name's Tommy, probably. He goes, Tommy, look, I didn't want to write you up. I wish I hadn't for being five minutes late because you're a great employee. You know, you're, you're always here, and you do a good job. I have to write you up for this. And corporate policy dictates that if you get two write-ups within a month, I got to let you go. And it, it kills me to say this. Now I got to let you go. So what happens with that guy? Now he's pissed, right? And he's going to think of probably me. He's gonna like, that, that guy knew he didn't pay for it. And like, I just lost my job or I got written up or whatever, you know? And he's going to kind of internalize that frustration, which will compound and, fresh, and like probably fester into anger eventually. And then he's going to go home and maybe he's a little snippety with his wife or girlfriend, a little short with his kids. He was already frustrated because he's barely making ends meet. Now it's like in a, a real bind because he just lost his job or he's on some kind of workplace pro- probation. That's going to turn into anger. That anger that that guy has, because he's going to hold on to it because that's just what dudes do, is maybe next time he's in traffic and he sees a truck similar to mine, you know, obviously in construction, and he's going to be looking at that truck going like, fucking guys like that. Like, fucking, just like that other guy, you know, that, like, drove off, you know, without paying or whatever. Here I am, like, still looking for a job when I'm behind on my bills at this point. Or maybe he's on the other end of a situation where the roles are reversed. He goes to get a sandwich. He goes, I could just walk out the front door right now. Sure. And no one's going to, no one, you know, that guy did it. That guy did it at my job, and I lost my job. Why don't I do it? And so he does that. And then the girl at the deli or whatever, the manager, like, hey, I got to talk to you in the office. Like, you know, it's your job to make sure. And the cycle repeats much in the same way that, you know, shitty parents have shitty kids who turn into shitty parents. And the cycle just keeps going and going and going. Point being is that little act has these like butterfly effect, like negative externalities. And I'm starting to like dwell over the psychology of my head. I'm like, that's kind of like the real like negative kind of externality of something like that. It's not the $160, you know, that the company is not going to miss at the end of the day. It's these like compounding effects that like ripple and spread and, and like move out throughout our, throughout our society. Sure. It's just kind of like, uh, you know, like I said, 
you do not want to participate in what you perceive to be a very incremental slice of societal <laughs> decay. Right. Right. Whether or not you run down the rabbit hole of all the things. I mean, obviously, you know, that guy's on probation or parole. Mm-hmm. Now he's, uh, he's in the hot seat with his officer. Mm-hmm. He gets jaywalking. You know, he's going back for three months. You know, all these <laughs> these different <laughs> all these all scenarios, these different connections. Here I am in my doctor's office. And all these scenarios are playing out in my head. Um, but, yeah, just there are people that do care about that, and there are people that don't. And, actually, there's... I've known some pretty successful people that I, I, I'm thinking of one guy. He owns a huge organization, really rich guy, started from scratch. And, uh, you know, we're going to lunch one day and he just like runs a red light or something, you know, early free driving. And uh, he's like, I try to break at least one law every day. <laughs> and uh, I'm just like, fuck, that's really interesting. Yeah. Because here you are, you've, you've made it. So far, you've done really great for yourself. You've obviously had to obey a bunch of laws to yeah. get to where you're at. But, uh, you know, maybe that is the reason this guy's like, I'm, I'm pushing it wherever I can, whenever I can, however I can. Maybe that's part and parcel of the same brain that allows him to think outside the box, become like an entrepreneur, for example. Yeah, but, you know, I think one aspect of what we're discussing is the facelessness. You know, you put a face on this problem that could exist, you know, this kid that's going back to the prison if <laughs> if you don't stop and pay your um but you know we're talking about organizations huge companies that kind of uh, drop the ball when it comes to customer service maybe they don't even care about what's going on with uh, at a certain level they're not there to support a guy buying a christmas tree or six pack or a punch bowl for their party they're there to you know do a bunch of other things and we're just slipping between the cracks on what they're able to pay attention to or care about paying attention to versus, you know, a guy that might stand to have some real world issues if you don't do the right thing. Right. Shopping cart test, right? Are you going to be a part of this incremental societal decay or are you going to be not necessarily pushing things the right direction, just it doesn't progress with you? And it's an interesting point. Yeah, it made me think about that. Kelly and I talk about this all the time, and he'll appreciate this, is that what we do, like man needs purpose, human beings. We need purpose. We need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. We need some kind of like meaning for our life. For those of you who don't believe me, Google lottery winner and then also add suicide or overdose, and you'll be amazed at how many articles you'll see like that. If you take away someone's purpose, or and that's largely defined by how well someone does their job, and so you take like a guy like this, and I'm going back to the oil change guy, like, okay, his, he's not getting a lot of meaning out of the money that he's making. Obviously, he's probably stretched pretty thin. And so he defines himself by how, how well he does his job. And the people at this place do their job very well. Here he is. He's busting his ass to do everything right. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, let's just for easy arithmetic, let's say half of the purpose or meaning that um, is defined by his, his work is the pride in his work, like how well he does his job, and then the economic benefit, the money he's making. Uh, the money is barely there anyway. You have taken away, when he gets called in that office and go like, hey, you, you dropped the ball there, that guy, you let that guy drive off without paying. It's like you just took away half of his meaning, half of the, the pride in his work right there. That got me going down like a larger rabbit hole. So think about um, the service industry, right? Bartenders, uh, you know, wait staff, everything. Their job is primarily defined by an, uh, 
an interaction with the customer at this establishment. Like, I want you to enjoy this place. And the way that I have to do that to facilitate that as aesthetic is by being very personable and making you feel welcome and being, you know, friendly and making you enjoy yourself. You know, it's basic, it's wholesale, you know, filtered through my personality of like how we achieve that here. Right. And all it takes is some narcissistic halfwit to come in and be rude to the wait staff or not tip. And it's like, that's their way of saying to their, their server or their customer service representative is saying like, you're, you provide no meaning to this interaction. Like you, you know, the reason that you're here, you know what I mean? That you have this presentation and this personality like fell short with me and it's not worth my time. By the way, as a PSA, if you still have that friend out there that is rude to wait staff or doesn't tip, cut that person out of your life. They're a fucking garbage human being. It's like terrible, ter broken human beings. That's how they act. So now think about it like I've been this. accused of that before. What's that? I've been accused of that before. <laughs> you have. And I know the story, and I got your side on that one. <laughs> so then I started thinking about, think about the people that work or used to work in retail downtown San Francisco, right? So I take this job for whatever, Neiman Marcus or Ralph Lauren or whatever, some high-end Downtown San Francisco, which was an iconic, like, people travel from all over the world to see this beautiful, like, San Francisco used to be one of the most beautiful downtowns in the entire world. And it's not anymore. Most of the stores have left. And the reason why that is is because of theft and flash mobs and crime and just third world conditions. And so you get a job at one of these high-end stores and they tell you, like, look, you got to dress nice, do your hair, I want you to wear you know, slacks and dress shoes and tie, and you're going to give people just the white glove treatment when they come in, you know, to the science store to search for a handbag or whatever. Um, however, if a flash mob comes in here and empties the entire place, you know, a mob comes through here and just loots the entire place, I need you to just stand by and do nothing, right? And when they leave, clean the place up and then go back to the first set of directives that I gave you, which is to be a customer service representative. Now, Neiman Marcus or Ralph Lauren or even down to Target and Walgreens, at a certain point, they don't really care until they do. It's just numbers to them. And they sure. go like, well, we're just going to shut down the store at this point. You know what I mean? But think about all the employees that work there. They're largely defined by this kind of set of customer service skills that they bring to the table. And to see a flash mob go through there and just loot the entire place, it's like you're ripping out the soul of like their meaning of of the pride of their work, right? Because they're told to like, it's the universe's way of telling them like, what you do does not matter. There's no meaning to what you're doing. You're, you're providing no purpose. That reason why you thought you, you know, jumped out of bed, you know, to do your hair and put on these nice clothes and come to work, that was all for nothing, right? That's the real negative externality of, of crime in, with, you know, in, in business establishments is what I was thinking about, right? So then I go even thir like even further. So these little things like driving off without paying for your oil change or bigger things like the flash mob, it has these like long-lasting kind of effects because that person leaves work that day. It's like, well, I, I provide no purpose to my job, and that's kind of how I was defined and how, how I like support myself. That's my livelihood. That clearly doesn't matter. They're going to carry that home. And it's going to compound itself, and it's going to spread and ripple out throughout the society. And it just gets, it turns into a cycle. It just gets worse and worse. Eventually, it's going to go so far in that direction 
that there will be a flashpoint, like uh, like a tipping point, if enough of this happens. Like there's at some point the needle, the needle kind of crosses the mark. Mm-hmm. If we have enough people feeling like this and spreading, just that that kind of, I guess like feeling of like nihilism, and just kind of negative, <laughs> like a dystopian worldview. Like it, what the fuck, it, like it doesn't even matter anymore. And there will be a flashpoint when the whole thing tips over. And I always talk about, we talk about this all the time, like, I don't think people realize, like, how fragile society actually is. Like, it does not take a whole lot for things to start to implode on itself. And once it reaches that point, like, it's fucking game on. There's no more order. There's no more civility. The moral compass has been crushed. And everything goes off the rails. And this is what I was thinking about just based on my oil change interaction. So think about it like this. That flashpoint that I was talking about, that's the universe announcing to all of us that, like, we are no longer adhering to any moral code. And once we go past that, I don't know, 50% mark or whatever, it's like, it's going to be, all it takes is that psychopathic 5%, 10% to, like, kick things into gear where everyone's like, okay, I guess, like, this is what we're doing now. It's like, we're no longer living in a civil society. Now you're getting into basically the fall of the culture. You know what I mean? Like where law and order ceases to exist. And I would argue if you go to a place like downtown San Francisco or any major urban city, it's, would you agree that things seem to be kind of screaming in that direction? Uh, I'd say for the past at least five years. Yeah. It's on a decline. And when we get to that, when there's no more law and order, what are we left with? We're left with basically might makes right. It's the most empathy deficient, like sociopathic guy out there is going to dictate the behavior of the day, which is might make right. Like I, I'm the strongest guy here. I have the most guns or whatever, whatever it is. Like he's going to be setting the terms of behavior from that point on because there's no, there's no more civil order to an area. This is all in my head as I'm sitting sure. in the doctor's office. So think about this. And you let me know if you think I'm getting too far out in the weeds. So after that, what do you get? It's like now everyone just steals shit, which is we're I'd say we're heading that direction. It's like, well, they're going to steal shit. Like, why, why am I paying for stuff? You know what I mean? The stores all eventually get picked clean, except for the ones who saw the writing on the wall, like your Targets and your Walgreens and all the stores in downtown San Francisco. And they say, like, we're out of here. Like, uh, good luck to you guys. You know what I mean? That's already happening, right? Now there are no more stores, so people start taking each other's shit, and so now we begin to riot. That's already begun to happen, right? The rioting gets so bad that any kind of weaponized organization that keeps order, which would be law enforcement, they leave. They go like, we're out of here. Good luck to you guys. That's already begun to happen, right? Let's go take one level further. Pretty soon, there's no more shit to take, so people just wander around the sh- <laughs> wander around the streets looking for people to shoot so they can take what they have. Only they don't really have that much stuff. Like you know what I mean? We're slowly having less and less stuff. You know what I mean? And whatever this might makes right model, the, the let's call them the warlords of the area, end up with all the stuff. Now, eventually, people are going to get hungry, right? Because you steal all the food from a store. And you've taken other people's food, 
and no food production facility in the right mind is going to deliver food to a third world dystopian hellhole, which is kind of, <laughs> I think we're just starting to see the beginnings of. So then what happens? You start running out of food. You start starving, right? And you're stuck in this dystopian hellhole with no way in or out because it's not safe to go out. If you venture outside, like someone's going to take what little shit that you have and you have to eat, right? If not, you will die, obviously. And you know this, it's ingrained in our DNA. We have strong neurological impulses to say like, if you don't eat soon, like we're going to shut this whole thing down, right? Very strong biological impulses that tell us that we need these things. And you already live in a society that it has been made clear, like, you are okay with killing people if you have to survive. So if you're starving and you don't mind killing anyone, there's no more food, what are we left with? People are food. Exactly. Cannibalism. <laughs> I feel like we skipped over a couple data points. Okay, go ahead. But we can, we can play from here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, it, it had me thinking, you know. Kelly's going to listen to this going like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, might makes right. Uh, you know, we're in a situation. That, that's always been correct. But mm-hmm. what props a society up? is no different than might makes right. It's the rule of and the enforcement of law mm-hmm. by people who have the ability to do so. Um, so in a scenario where you remove or you like make impotent the societal ability to enforce the law, mm-hmm. then you leave the, the door open for lawlessness and I'm imagining a scenario where, you know, kind of halfway to cannibalism, um, we have people who are just like taking the law into their own hands and saying, okay, I'm I'm not, you know, this is spread in the city centers. It's spread from the city centers out outwards a little bit. Right. And now it's out here. It's on our doorsteps. And I'm seeing or imagining, you know, communities, literal communities, because I don't think you have any of the communities in the big cities that's just not how they're designed and set up to work. Yeah. Um, these people that do the smash and grabs and the boosting stores and all those things, you could say to some degree they've got a community set up, but uh, it's based on just taking whatever they can get from right. whoever they can get it from. It's not like all that is going to build their community. It's like a de- degeneracy-based community. Sure. Yeah. You know, But at a certain point, it's going to get to where there are tight-ish knit groups of folks who do not want to participate in, again, this incremental uh, corrosion of society. And in absence of some other more legitimate, you know, might makes right group showing themselves, they will have to be that. Otherwise, they will become swept away in kind of what's taking over the streets in San Francisco, right? Yeah, for sure. Actually, uh, Polly, our friend, actually witnessed something. I think it was Polly at a chain store here, which we consider ourselves a very distant satellite of the Bay Area, I guess you could say, like a suburb, more or less. Yep. And someone walked into that chain store and just loaded up their cart and left. And like three customers jumped on them and said, like, you're not fucking doing that here. Go to San Francisco. And it made my heart. I was like, Ugh. like, that just gives me like a little bit of faith. They're saying like, yeah, we know that it's spreading, but it's, it's, it stops here, at least while I'm sitting here in this store, which it was a beautiful thing to hear and but we haven't reached that tipping point 
because that doesn't happen in San Francisco, for example, is or New York or Chicago or Philadelphia, or where you see these giant kind of organized flash mobs as people go like, that's just like what happens. Like the moral code has been, I guess moral code is probably the wrong word, but it's been altered to such an extent that this is acceptable behavior. It's just kind of part of living, which is one of the saddest things that, sure. and that's, I mean, that's within what, five years? We're not talking about like a huge timeline here. I'll take it a step further. Props to the people that got involved and prevented this corrosion of society when it was directly in their face. Yeah. But we need to have either those folks or another ancillary group of people mm-hmm. involved in a situation like that. See other people that should have or could have been involved and just beat the shit out of them for not <laughs> getting involved. We need to tighten up the fabric. I like that. I like that. So be a part of it on one side or the other. Uh, a major a, a major cultural shift or a, a, a true like significant paradigm kind of shift. Uh, sociologists and anthropologists, I guess it would be, have long since believed that it only takes 10 to 15%, right? You only have your 10 to 15% like true believers, good or bad, right? So it's only that 10% that, like, let's just go in there and loot the store. And you'd be surprised how everyone just kind of falls in line. Like, okay, like, they're not going to partake in it necessarily, but I will accept this as just everyday reality at this point. It goes the other way, too. That 10%, all it took is those three burly rednecks at the store that Polly saw and said, like, you're not doing that shit here. And it's like those three guys. And when the store goes, like, yeah, right, we can, we can all stop this. Now, I would like to admonish the people that stood by and waited for someone else to do it. That's a little ridiculous, but still all it takes is for just that, that small handful of people to speak up saying like, this is, we're not accepting that here. You can do it somewhere else, but you're not doing it here. We see what happened to San Francisco. We're not letting that happen here. Like it stops right here. So all it takes is to use your example. It's like, yes, you have to stand up and do something in these situations. We need to return the shopping cart to its vestibule, and whenever we identify somebody that is actively trying to uh, either remove shopping carts for reasons other than shopping or are not taking their shopping cart in, deal with it. Yes. And the point being, what I'm getting at is my overall kind of theme, my PSA is that unless you are stockpiling ammo you know, or completely ready to abandon your moral compass and develop a taste for human flesh. Be nice to your server, leave a good tip, and don't take shit that's not yours. That's my PSA. Okay. Now, I was waiting for the tie-in from healthcare to (laughs) the oil stop. It kind of went a different direction. So, real quick, we'll touch on this. Like, medical, Mm -hmm. you go there. I mean, it's... The parallels between your, your oil change visit and your hospital visit <laughs> were kind of what I was stacking up mentally, right? Okay. Um, would you consider healthcare to be in any way, shape, or form sort of a service industry, hospitality industry? Like, what? Because there's a lot of parallels to what's going on, you know, the term bedside manner and all mm-hmm. these things sort of play into one way of thinking about it but on the other side of the coin i feel like they're completely exempt from having to behave in certain ways that mm-hmm. would have us even consider saying things like hey <laughs> thanks for taking care of me today here's a tip right <laughs> i'm not saying we're there yet but like like that was by far the best gallbladder surgery i've ever had <laughs> all right um let's see you people what are we doing so that that's kind of interesting so a couple couple things on that 
is I ended up going to the hospital with a staph infection. And you know the story, but I tell for Kelly and everyone else is I had it on my hand and I woke up that morning and it was one of those very, I am very, very resistant to going to the hospital. I just like, I've given myself stitches. I was like, I, I, I got it. I'll handle it. I tried all the kind of go-to redneck home remedies that tea tree oil you gave me, which has done the trick in the past. But this one, I was clearly losing the battle where I woke up. My wife goes, please go to the hospital like right now. And it was a uh, two-hour period where I was like, I, I'm not going to lose my hand, am I? Because <laughs> I was like digging out the infection with a knife and packing it with tea tree oil. And, and it just seemed, it, the inf- once the infection starts spreading up your arm, you go, uh, yeah, this is a bad one. It's nowhere near, nowhere near as bad as a staph infection that you have in your leg when you get back from Thailand, which I still have nightmares about from seeing that thing. But I go to the hospital and I unwrap my hand. And since I had been digging out the infection with a knife, I had these like pus filled, like, uh, I don't know what you call them, like pits in my hand. And when I unwrap my hand, doctor, this is not the reaction you want from your doctor. Oh, wow. Okay. Ooh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And she was great, by the way. But she goes, uh, that looks a lot like a bite. I'm like, no, it's not a bite. She goes, it does look like you, you didn't get bitten? I'm like, no, I didn't get a bite. And I'm thinking, like, these are odd questions. And so she goes, okay, like, we're going to get you on this drug and this and this and this. Let's clean it up and blah, blah, blah. And she, <laughs> she, looks, she stops for a second and goes, you sure you didn't get bitten? I was like, I couldn't be more sure, definitely. And then it, like, hit me. I think she thought that maybe I got in a street fight and I didn't want to, ah. I got bit and I didn't want to like report it to the police or a dog. And I didn't want the dog to get busted. Yet. She goes, it looks really like a human or a dog bite, which is kind of funny, but she had a, an amazing bedside manner, which I appreciated like very, very, I was in and out of there and she was great and everything, but to go, you, you made me think of something as far as bedside manner goes is that, have you ever looked at the rates of psychopathy and like CEOs and surgeons and stuff like that? Like high, high end career paths and the rates of psychopathy are kind of off the charts compared to other kind of lines of work. Okay. No, nope, some of that is, is that kind of element of psychopathy, which exists on a gradient, of course, that frees up this person's mind to detach from any kind of emotional involvement in the tasks that they have. So for a CEO, He's like, yeah, it's just all numbers in the end. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we're going to close down this plant. All these people lose their jobs. He's kind of like, why are you telling me this? Like, I'm looking at the spreadsheets. We're going to close down this plant and move to China or whatever. And your surgeon, right? So if you have a nurse practitioner or your server at your favorite restaurant, like, yeah, I'd like that nice kind of personable manner and, and, and like kind of a friendly kind of, you know, interaction with someone. When it comes to a surgeon, someone that I've depended on for my family's well-being, it's like, I don't care if that guy's nice. And I've met some of these surgeons and they're like, just like I, it's almost like you're dealing with a cyborg. You're like, yes, that's the guy I want. I want him thinking about nothing. This guy's brain can have a kid come in with a gunshot wound and he doesn't look at it like, that looks just like my son. Like, I don't know if I can do this. He's yeah. like, I got a job to do. Get that bullet out and we're going to sew it up. Like now, like, why are you guys standing? Why are you crying right now? Like get to work. Thin line between say, Psychopathy and professionalism in this uh, sort of yes stream of consciousness that you're laying out here. Um, you know, that's great. I was a EMT at one point interviewing for fire department jobs. Hey, what's your biggest weakness? You were an EMT? Yeah. I was too. Eh, it's no big deal. 
<laughs> it's it's only a six month course. Um, nationally registered, baby. Um, but you know that you're interviewing, and they're like, "Hey, what? What? You know, the, the standard questions." You get to be an EMT. Uh, they were hiring. <laughs> you didn't see. Add this big in the paper. And I'm a psycho, so it's... <laughs> um, but yeah, they're like, what's your biggest weakness? I said, uh, well, I honestly don't know how I will respond if and when I'm called to an emergency and there's like a kid. Yeah. There, right? Like that, that'll that probably break me out of whatever right. training I've got to the point where whatever's underneath is going to be taking a more of a front seat to whatever training or, you know, like professionalism I got, right? Yeah, there. gotcha. So, be curious to see what the report... Uh, quantifies uh, exactly as, you know, psychopathy. I hate that word. Um, You know, because even the guy that's looking at spreadsheet that's like, these numbers are red. I need them to be black. (laughs) These decisions get made. Like, to some degree, yeah, he's making decisions that are... We can't uh, just dump the waste in the river. Yeah, yeah, you can. You actually can just do it. Otherwise, we're going to go bankrupt. Show me the river dumping laws in this (laughs) geography. (laughs) Um, okay. So covering some interesting ground here, um, Mm -hmm. but we're getting into like a cooking show thing now. Is that what's going on? A cooking show. Oh, cannibalism. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So speaking of cannibalism, uh, so first off, I mean, just like the first thing I find out, I'm sure you were shocked as I was to learn that cannibalism is legal in 49 States. Every state except for Idaho, which carries a sentence up to 14 years, which I thought was very interesting. But so here's the kind of here's the thing that you need to kind of parse through uh, when you are, I guess, pondering the the art, the cannibal is that murder is illegal, but cannibalism is legal. Yeah, where did you get this sandwich, right? Okay, <laughs> yes, exactly. Can, that, so so if you are one that wants to imbibe the delicacy known as long pork, it's like, well, where, where would I get such a delicacy? Right. So it's like one of those things where it's illegal to, to procure it, but once you have it, it's all yours. no problem. It's like a 30-round mag for your AR. <laughs> 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 Where'd you get this? I don't know. Keep going. <laughs> So I did find one exemption. This excludes, uh, obviously, the Dresden cannibal. You heard of this guy? I have not. So this is a guy in Germany, obviously. Uh, he posted on a fetish website. He's like, I just really want to find another man to make love to and then slowly eat him piece by piece. Okay? I mean, we can find almost anything on the Internet. And, of course, as one would, I don't know, may or may not guess, some guy writes him back. I was like, I'm free this weekend. Uh, is this in Germany? Yeah. Okay. This Where is, else could it be? This is the one that I... It's either Florida, Florida or Germany. <laughs> right. So this is actually the case I brought up. Okay. So I'm oh, did a you? discussion like, hey, we're talking about cannibalism. Hey, look at this. Look at this thing. It's, turns out cannibalism is legal in all these states minus this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and nah, that doesn't make sense. I'm not buying into this because where did you get it? It was right. the very first thing that came back, right? So I'm like, okay. Well, what if you got it from yourself? Yeah. Or, you know, your friend comes over and they're like, hey, look what I brought. <laughs> um, anyway. So the Dresden Cannibal thing is kind of interesting because he still got, this was name, his name is Armin Meuse, and this is in 2001. He still got charged with murder, even though the guy went there on his own volition, like, and said, you know, they have a, you know, on the fetish site, of like, look, here's the interaction between these two guys. Like, he was, he was all for it. I think the guy eventually bled out in his bathtub. He slowly ate several parts of him while he was still alive. 
And the guy, like, I don't want to say enjoyed, but um, went through the experience with him until he eventually died. And I think he ate a bunch more of him. And he was eventually arrested before he ate the entire body. Body. So this gets me on, like, a, a little bit of a deeper dive on cannibalism, which I'm sure put me on yet another list. But it actually has a very vibrant and rich history, not only in the U.S., but the world abroad. Because we know of all the, the, the usual ones, right? The, the Donner Party would be one of the most famous. And uh, that book, uh, Alive, wow, based on the Uruguayan uh, rugby team that crashed in the Andes and, and started eating each other. Um, I was looking at like colonial history in America, the founding, the settling of Jamestown. Super interesting. Big time cannibals, by the way. Because when they sent that first wave of colonials over here and they settled in Jamestown, is I didn't know this. They didn't just send anyone, like, you, you want to try your hand at something new in America? No, they sent over, like, British, like, upper class. And so they sent all these people over, men only, no women. They sent all these people over, and they had never worked with their hands. They didn't know how to build anything. They didn't know how to fish. They didn't know how to hunt. They didn't know how to grow vegetables. They had, no, they had never worked with their hands. They had servants had done everything for them. They relied solely on the neighboring Native American tribes to, for food, and they'd trade, like, copper and textiles and whatsoever. Now, as white Europeans were so want to do at that time, they eventually piss off the natives. The natives pulled up San Francisco Walgreens and said, like, Fuck, we're out of here. Good luck to you. And we'll check in with you after this next winter, see how you guys are doing. And they immediately started eating each other. Hmm. That was not taught to me in U.S. American history, which I'm disappointed. Yeah, no, that's, this is the first I've heard of that one. But, I mean, logically it makes sense. You plop a bunch of people down somewhere mm -hmm. where the resources are scarce and non-existent. And even if they were there, there's count, accounts of them trying to scoop fish out of the water with frying pans. And the natives were just watching going like, oh, boy, wow. Hmm. What do we have here? Uh, the French under Napoleon, who decided to ignore the age-old adage of do not attack the Soviet Union during the winter. And then Napoleon went like, I got it. I'll show you. And they immediately started freezing to death. It's like 30 below zero. These French soldiers were so cold that some of them would just slowly lay themselves on the flat on the fire to in a desperate attempt to get warm, and they would immediately start cooking. And then their brothers in arms next to them would immediately just start pulling the flesh off and eating it because they were also starving. I think one, I think they sent the original wave of troops in there under uh, Napoleon, the French troops, is they sent 450,000 troops, one in 20 returned. And the only people that returned were the ones that would imbibe in the long pork, we can assume. Uh, you familiar at all with like the prisoners of like the Stalin era Soviet Union is what they do is take these people and there was no prison. They take them like just inside the Arctic circle up in Siberia and just drop them off. There was like a loose kind of organized prison, but not much in the way of cells. Cause like if you escape there, what are you going to do now? The war at the worst time, if you read the Google archipelago, they sent thieves and rapists and murderers and everyone up there. But the worst, can you, I'm sure you can guess what the worst kind of strata a prisoner was like the lowest of the low it would be like the the common day equivalent of like a child molester okay we're political prisoners because we're living under communism now the prisoners up there living up in you know these camps in siberia they were given a handful of rice flour every three days basically not enough to live on 
And then they take these political prisoners and the guards and the prisoners had the understanding, we're going to mark these, these people as political prisoners, they're food. Okay. And so they send the political prisoners up there. They'd be the food for the inmates. Big time cannibals. That's bizarre, right? <laughs> Speaking of the Soviet Union, under Stalin and his uh, collectivist policies, so many people were starving to death at this time, this is early 1900s, that cannibalism became rife, so much so that kids were taught, like, you're not allowed to play outside because someone's going to snatch you up and eat you. Now, this was kind of considered like some kind of mythical folklore. It actually ended up being totally true is people were starving to such an extent they would just wander the streets to find like someone to kidnap and eat them now this starts to get interesting because so, you know a lot of people died right and then the authorities the police the soviet police would show up to take the body away and the family would make an argument saying like no this is our family member it's our property you're not going to take it they were making that argument because they were going to eat him that's known as gastronomic incest Okay. Which is a good band name, by the way. Yeah. And many psychologists think that this is, that the origins of this is what created the psychology that gave us Andre Chikatilo. Are you familiar with him? No. He is one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. I think he killed 57 women and children. Andre Chikatilo. And he... Um, it's not that Pee Wee guy, is it? Paul Rubens? Yeah. Oh, Pee Wee no, Gaskins? Pee Wee Gaskins. <laughs> That's Donald Gaskins. Okay. <laughs> Different serial killers. Okay. He was uh, late 60s, South Carolina. <laughs> Why I know all this off the top of yeah. my head. He was a mess. But... Uh, he, there's a book about Pee Wee Gaskins called The Final Truth, which is one of the most disturbing things I've ever read, but it's hilarious because it's written in the way he talks, which is like this like, half-wit kind of insane redneck, and it's one of the most hilarious things I've ever heard or seen. Um. That was the gastronomical incest. Oh, gastronomic incest. Yeah. Written oh, that Andre Chikatilo as a yep. kid had witnessed so many of these incidents of his of kids being snacked off the streets and eaten, and him eluding like many kidnapping attempts. So much they said like, and he already had that wiring, that capacity to be a psychopath, and him being growing up starving. He never had real bread, I think, until he was twelve years old. Like truly, truly starving. Oh. Like, yeah, they ate weeds and insects and you know, rodents, whatever they could find. And he had witnessed so much just carnage and cannibalism. They think that that's what fostered the wiring for him to become what he came, which is an absolute complete monster. So what I'm saying is don't be rude to your server. Leave a good tip. These All things right. are very important. I don't know if this is a segue, but I've heard about this. On this podcast. The Cannibal Club in Southern California. Oh, boy. So it's very sparsely populated website in terms of whenever a taboo is broken something good happens something vitalizing i don't know who I've never, miller was i've never heard cannibalism described like that yeah our noted our exclusive clientele includes noted filmmakers intellectuals and celebrities who have embraced the enlightenment ideals of free expression and rationalism I mean, to some degree, you're plopped down somewhere, no resources, Indians won't talk to you, can't get a fish in the pan. It's only rational, mm -hmm. right? It's just practical to start eating people right. at a certain point. But we're talking about L.A., modern day, right? <laughs> um, so, cuisine. Oh, the uh, adrenochrome pate. There is the placenta lasagna, which <laughs> kind of is the least mysterious looking dish on this. Mrs. Lovett's meat pies. Is this real? Yeah. 
Huh. FAQ. Where do you get your specialty meat? Our avenues of procurement vary most. <laughs> Should have left it just that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> most of the businesses, most of the businesses and institutions who supply us prefer to keep those relationships discreet. So, <laughs> um, isn't cannibalism wrong? Cannibalism, as traditionally practiced, usually shows respect for, to the deceased who is desired to be reborn into the living or offered as a worthy sacrifice to some deity. Hmm. Uh, speaking of the deceased. Want to contact him? No. <laughs> Look at this. We just ate. What is this? <laughs> wow, we can. Yeah. So, anywho. Events. We got a birthday party coming up. I'm going to read you a headline from Britain. And I like this story as it kind of serves as like a perfect example of like how a bureaucracy works and where the bureaucracy has some negative situation and it's always kind of the same thing. They, they bring out some head of the bureaucracy and what do they say? They're like, okay, like we're going to do better. So you have uh, Gavin Newsom's like an expert at this, for example, right? He gets caught eating at French laundry and look, we all make mistakes. We all fall short sometimes. I'm like, no dick. You ate at the French Laundry while I couldn't go to my job. My kid co couldn't go to school. And by the way, what's this wee shit? You got a mouse in your pocket? Like, you are the one that fucked up. Like, it, like they're so, like, the way they manipulate language. Like, yeah, we're all in this together. And like, no, you're the one that fucked up. Or you have someone like Donald Rumsfeld said, like, uh, you know, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, you guys can't account for a trillion dollars of the Pentagon budget, and you got us into a legal war that killed over half a million innocent Iraqi children. But mistakes were made, like, yeah, good enough, Donnie. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for facing the music. I appreciate it. So I'm going to read the first half of the headline, and then I'm going to give you some excerpts from the, the statement by the bureaucracy from the article attempting to explain the situation. And then I'll read the whole headline, and so you can see what they're referring to. Okay, here's the first half of the headline. British inquiry finds serious failings at hospital. That's the first half. Now here are some of the statements from their 308-page inquiry into the problem. Here's the first one. The failures of management, governance, regulation, and processes, and a persistent lack of curiosity all contributed to the creation of the environment. Okay, tell me you're saying nothing without saying nothing. Here's another one. We accept that relatives were repeat, repeatedly let down by those at all levels whose job it was to protect and care for them. Okay? And then you get the plan of action, which is also usually a complete nothing burger. Mike Scott, who became chief executive of Maidstone and Turnbridge Wells NHS Trust in 2018, said the vast majority of the report's recommendations have been put in place and others would be accomplished soon. Okay? That's them explaining away the situation. Okay. Here's the whole headline. <laughs> British inquiry finds serious failings at hospital where a worker had sex with over 100 corpses. Oh, I, I took... Have you seen this one? We've discussed this. Have we? Yeah. We were... Having a Sunday get-together once, and I brought this up, and this was the process. See, that's the day we quit drinking. No, this was when you said, I would rather this person didn't have eyes or something like didn't that. Didn't have so a head, yeah. look at, yeah. yeah. That, so that, I had just finished watching something about this dude. I guess, I don't know why he's in the news. Yeah, this, his finally. name is, he, he was an electrician maintenance worker. His name is David Fuller, who had been routinely having... Um, Let's call them uh, non-consensual post-mortem acts of intimacy. And he was busted in 2001. And then the DNA, 
he was actually caught in the act, which we'll get to in a little bit. But then they took the DMA, DNA and linked it to at least 100 other clients sure. <laughs> from this morgue. Well, so I actually, unfortunately, know quite a bit about this. Mm-hmm. Two murders occurred. 1987. Yeah. Was, yep. And uh, DNA testing stuff caught up. Long story short, at some point, he gets a knock on the door. I think, like, wife and two kids at home. Yeah. Just about having dinner. It's always the guy you don't expect. And uh, they come in, they search the place, find a bunch of hard drives. Um, They think what happened was he killed these two women back in the 80s. 87, yeah. But when he got his job in the hospital, he didn't have to kill anymore because he had unfettered access to as much of what he was into Mm -hmm. as he needed. So he was... Well-worded. He needed it. He, he wanted to do a thing. He had to kill these women to do that thing, but he didn't need to kill the people anymore. But he had, like, terabytes, which is a yeah. huge, huge volume of data of recordings of himself uh, in the act in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. There's another side to the story because yeah. we try to be kind of present both sides and not have a bias. But in Mr. Fuller's defense, as because he was also caught – in the act by some people that walked into the morgue, let's say. And he claimed that he suffered a dizzy spell, fainted, and his belt caught the zipper of the body bag and unzipped the bag on that the body was in and his trousers, which fell down, and he was merely standing back up to get his bearings. So I'm saying there's – the jury's still out. There's kind of two sides of every story. So draw, draw your own conclusions from there. Hey, you're a father. I'm a father. We know how easy this can happen. <laughs> Okay, I guess we should tackle something serious. <laughs> okay, Kelly's going to go off his mind. Um, are you familiar with this latest um, New York Times article? A new bombshell report in the New York Times that Israeli officials knew Hamas attacks, Hamas had an attack plan for October 7th, more than a year before it happened. Here's part of what that story said. The approximately 40-page document, which Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to deaths of about 1,200 people. This is kind of interesting for several reasons, and this is something that we tackled after the October 7th attacks. And I like this because when something like this happens, as we always do, we immediately begin to look at what we perceive to be holes in the mainstream media. Now, our bias is we have a wild distrust of anything coming out of mainstream media because it always usually turns out to be incorrect or just an outright lie altogether. And I thought this was interesting because the original narrative, dumbed down for the simpletons that only read headlines and promptly share them on Facebook for some reason, was something along the lines of Hamas just jumped up and started slaughtering the neighbors in Israel. And, oh, my God, can you believe the depravity? Right. It was something along along the lines like that. Not that it wasn't bad. It was horrific. It's anytime innocent people die. It's horrific. But as we usually ask, our our immediate inclination is like, well, why did they attack? You know, what's the history of that region? And so on. Right. Those are like the initial questions you just ask, because it's like it just seems a little. I don't know. I don't know what the word like kind of fantastic, like just just inordinate to launch an attack like that. There has to be a reason, right? This can't be some random thing. This is what drives me nuts about stuff like this in the mainstream media is they never 
they always fail, at least in the very beginning, to like, here's a basic context for which this situation exists, which is maddening to me. Because people, the vast majority of people see that and they have an emotional reaction, which for, immediately forms their opinion, which is then immediately gets set in stone. We talked about that. I think it was a Harvard study that says like people, like 80% of people will believe the first thing you tell them and that will not change despite the facts changing or different facts coming out. They've done several studies on this. And I know that this upsets people for whatever reason. I think it's just an emotional based kind of reaction, but consider doing some homework before you post that flag in your profile or start pounding out your social media tantrum or be like us. Do we, metric shit ton of research and talking and reading on something and still come out the other end. Like I still don't have an opinion on this. Like it's, it's that situation is so vastly complex. I can't sit there and tell you like, here's my, I'm on this team at this point, And my opinion is not going to change. All it does is like, okay, I have a better understanding of what happened here and why it happened. And other than I think the U S should just stay out of it. It's like, I'm not on any of these teams. I just want to know more about this situation and possibly about the events that led up to it. Sound familiar? Absolutely. <clears throat> it's it, it reminded me of the same thing that you saw with something like 9-11, right? Is you have this horrific thing happen, a bunch of people die. And I remember back then, you know, being in college at the time and going like, why would they do that? Like what what was the reason? What was what's the stated reason why they did that? Who did this? Like what's what's the history, you know? And not having access to information as much as we have now, I should use my finger quotes when we say information there. But there's this immediate immediate backlash for asking the question because everyone is so emotionally invested in seeing, you know, the footage of the planes hitting the twin towers. You're like, how could you even ask that question? I was like, because I want to know what drives someone to do something like that, and I'm not buying that some asshole in a cave hates our freedom and that's the end of it. Like that makes no sense to me. The same thing happens with this Hamas Israel attack. It's like. That happens on October 7th, October 8th, all of a sudden everyone's just like, here's my steadfast, unwavering opinion, and it's not going to change. Like, I know, I know what I need to know at this point. Meanwhile, on October 6th, 80% of these fucking dimwits couldn't find either of those countries on a map, and that's what drives me fucking crazy. I'm like, just, dude, do me a favor. Tell me when Israel was established. You don't, okay, just shut up. I don't want to hear your opinion on this. Like, just... I'll give you 15 minutes on Wikipedia just to kind of bring yourself up to speed and then go ahead and put whatever flag you want outside, outside your house. It drives me nuts that it's just all emotional based. Sure. That's what, what drives me crazy about these situations. And then the next level is after you ask these questions, like, okay, who did what? Why did they did it? What's the history of that? Whatever that entity, that region, that country, that terrorist cell, whatever it is. And then you take it down another level and you get into what is pretty quickly dismissed as conspiracy theories, at least in the beginning stages. But as we always like to remind people, like what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth? Uh, what, two weeks. It used to be six months. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's like two to four weeks. So, you know, in reference to like nine 11, you know, we look at the fact like, okay, so the dust settles and probably poor choice of words there, but they go like, Okay, the State Department had memos you know, a year before. It said bin Laden intending to strike inside the U.S. and the very high likelihood that he was going to weaponize commercial jetliners. I'm not saying that, well, they just let it happen. They knew exactly what was going to happen, when it was going to happen. All I'm saying is, like, shouldn't we ask some questions here? Like, why is this not part of the conversation? The same thing happened with Hamas and Israel. It's like one of the first things we said, like, Egypt warned them three days before the attack, like, 
Hamas is planning to attack. Like we're we're watching them like drilling exactly what they ended up doing, right? And we're just giving you like fair warning. And you bring that up, people's immediate inclination is go like, oh, like so you're saying they let it happen? You're like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Not yet. Is what I'm saying is why aren't we not talking about this? Like, why was this, like, Egypt told them, like, hey, something's going down. Like, you guys should probably be prepared. We're talking about one of the most tightly controlled, technologically advanced borders in the entire world. And you're telling me they had no idea it was going to happen, and that border was breached with a bunch of tractors and motorcycles and trucks and, and paragliders? That thing from <laughs> uh, Mad Max where the guy flies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's basically that, right? <laughs> it is. Sorry. And so it gets into when, when, you, when you just start asking these questions and people say, like, oh, where are you getting that? And then it, you go, well, I just I'm, I, I read it like here's it's, it's from the times of Egypt. And, you know, they're saying this. And then this is why we have these things It's like they wanted to shut that conversation down because it's like for it doesn't align with that emotion that they have in their brain. And they go. Oh, like you're doing your own research. Like that's a pejorative all of a sudden. Like if I do my own research when I go shopping for a new car, I'm considered a well-informed consumer. But I do my own research before you jab me with an experimental mRNA technology, that all of a sudden I'm a domestic a terrorist. I'm a domestic extremist. That like makes no sense to me. I think it's time for a change in semantics. Instead of saying something to the effect of I do my own research, which sort of is their like dog whistle for this guy's seeking out information that is like bias confirming he's going to specific people who are untrustworthy to get his information. Mm -hmm. He didn't get that information from my source and I know my sources are trusted. So he must be getting it from somewhere seedy instead of dressing it up, which uh, is why we need to teach people starting in kindergarten, (laughs) which sites they can trust saying, instead of saying, I do my own research, whip it around on them and just say, I read the small Yeah, I I read the the actual article. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however many words you want to throw at it, but I'm fucking crazy like that. I mean that that leaves it open to saying, hey, you read the headline, I read the article. Yeah, right. Which is again too many words to throw at somebody that's going to discard your entire perspective or dialogue or course of questioning out of hand because again it doesn't fall into what's confirming their specific bias about something challenging them on why they believe something often can be the whole thing that causes this person to shut down and walk off yeah which probably a good thing oh well we've said it before i think essentially what you're doing is you're pulling out the, the 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 foundational underpinnings of their entire belief system so when they say something like wait you're not taking the jab no we're not i just number one i'm not worried about covid and number two, I'm just I'm kind of looking at some of the data, and I just I have some real questions about how exactly safe and effective this is. Where are you getting that information uh, from the NIH and the CDC and the you know PubMed data? I mean the same stuff that you're reading. I'm just reading the entire thing, and then you know people just, they just kind of glaze over. Like why why would you do that? There's a time to stop doing your own research and just listen to the experts. Well, fair enough, but these experts like continually are wrong over and over and over. Remember, folks, if there was no clinical trial, that means you are the clinical trial. Just something to throw in the background there. Yeah, just you're going further with it than I even would at this point. I've kind of reserved <laughs> myself to saying things like, eh, sometimes I just kind of want to die anyway. <laughs> you know, just like white lung. <laughs> Excuse me. You're not vaccinated. You can't, you don't have to worry about white lung, apparently. <laughs>
Oh, nice. <laughs> And we're back. So you brought up something that I, I have actually been thinking about, which will hit in a little, little bit. But so take just to kind of reframe what we were talking about before the break is after October seventh, we were asking questions like, wasn't Israel warned that there were going to be attacks? And you know, when people say like, so you're saying Israel let it happen? Like, no, I'm just saying there's some some questions here. Like, there's things that there's some holes in the mainstream narrative that I'm being given. I'm just kind of asking some of these questions is to go like a little bit bigger. I've thought about the psychology of the people that just can't like wrap their heads around, like even the idea of asking these questions or just discussing it, you know, people that want, they have a complete reluctance or I would say even resistance from deviating from the mainstream narrative whatsoever. I've always found that kind of fascinating and confusing. I'm like, you don't, these are people, I was like, I know you have critical thinking skills in other areas. It's like, why does that you seem to hit the pause button, you know, when it comes into taking mainstream media, for example. And I think a lot of it, what it is when you talk about either 9-11 or the Hamas attacks in Israel, is like people can't wrap their heads around the idea that the government or the deep state or wherever, you know, top of the power hierarchy is you ask people like, do you think a government or a state entity would willingly sacrifice their own people in order to achieve some kind of political agenda. And for me, it's a no brainer. I'm like, well, yeah, of course they would. But for people to go like, no, of course I, that's, that's macabre. That's barbaric. Like I can't understand it. And so you go, but we will go, let's just take the U S we will go on the other side of the world. We'll go to Vietnam, for example, and drop Asian orange on allied countries and an Asian orange and napalm and kill, I think, what, like 2 million people in Cambodia, Laos, you know, both North and South Vietnam. It's like, we're okay with that. Like, we have no problems with that. But they would never do that to 100, 200, you know, 2,500 people in the U.S. if it achieved this other political agenda. And people go like, no, of course not. I was like, okay, like, what color is the sky in your world? It's like, so then you have to take it to another level, and we just hit this on another episode, is you have to understand that these organizations, these NGOs, these power hierarchies, they have no allegiance to country. They have an allegiance to power, right? So when we talk about the Trilateral Commission, the Club of Rome, and the Atlantic Council, and the WEF, you know, the Committee of 300, it's like these are, these are organizations with one agenda, and that agenda has been consistent since the late 1800s, and that has the same people behind them every, you know, when you look at the Rockefellers who mentored Henry Kissinger, and then Henry Kissinger mentors Klaus Schwab. There's this lineage, and they all carry this basically psychopathic authoritarian global agenda that's still going on today. And so when people can't wrap their heads around, like, no, I just, I just wholesale do not believe that we, that, you know, our government would hurt its own citizens to further a political agenda. It's like, you don't, I don't think you have an understanding of like who these people really are. And Part of that reason is you have to explain to people that <clears throat> when we talk about, we loosely throw around the term uh, authoritarian psychopaths, right? And they have an allegiance to power, not to, not to a country. Is I think the 
if you can get someone that far down the road, I think their thinking process stops at basically, I don't know, the character Ming from the original Flash Gordon. Just this one guy just like wants all the power. I want all this individual power. And that's not what we're talking about when we talk about these psychopathic authoritarians and their allegiance to power. What it is is that these politicians, these political elites, and these people in these NGOs were very much groomed from the very beginning. So a perfect example, current day example, would be the WF and their Young Global Leader Program, right? Your Gavin Newsom's and your Trudeau's and everything, is they ha- are instilled with the agenda. They don't have an allegiance to a country. They have an allegiance to power, not individual power, because they're psychopathic, like broken individuals. They are, clearly. But... Their agenda is for this one world governance thing. And if that means that I have to put so many hundred thousand of our own, you know, citizens in harm's way or send them across the world to get killed, like, then so be it. I don't have an allegiance to America. I have an allegiance to this global superstructure, this agenda that's moving along swimmingly, by the way. That all making sense? Yep. Power structure. Their commitment is to remaining in power and continuing to snowball what power they have into greater and greater power, right? Mm-hmm. Is, and we talked about this in a previous episode, but so we're taking the thing that has designated us as conspiracy theories and less than two months ago, as things begin to trickle out, as they seem to always do, begins to come true. Because now our conspiracy theory, or at least the conspiracy theory-oriented questions that we're asking, like, it seems like Israel definitely had a heads up that something might happen, right? Where'd you get that? Well, there's these, you know, these Egyptian news sites and everything, like, everyone's like, okay, like, I don't, as you remember you were saying before, like, I don't know this fringe stuff where you're getting this information, but it doesn't come from the sources that I usually look at, so I'm out, like, you lost me. But now we have the New York Times saying that they had this 40-page detailed battle plan a year in advance, like they had the battle, the Hamas battle plan. We're going to do this. We're going to use the paragliders. We're going to breach the fence here. And here's basically how we're going to do it. And they had a year in advance. And it's basically exactly what we're saying. But now it's coming from your source. You know, and we can, it, you know, your New York Times, your precious New York Times that you trust everything that comes out of. It's like, you know, we can assume that New York Times is like the go-to spot for information for people that are genetically resistant to asking questions about anything. It's like, just spoon feed me the information so I can parrot it at Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is. It's like, okay, are you happy now? Like, this is, this is your source. Then you get into the notion of the limited hangout, which do you remember us talking about right, that? Right, right. So God, that was, that was a little counterintuitive for me. I hadn't heard the term mm-hmm. and uh, it's basically putting out just a small amount of actual information about something mm-hmm. and making that the headline. It's, it's, it's it, a headline versus fine print type stuff. Or? Yeah. Basically what it is, is you have the mainstream narrative who basically carries the water for you know, whatever is at the mm-hmm. top of the power hierarchy. And, you know, the terrorists hate our freedom to, you know, Palestine or just mindless barbarians or whatever it is, you know, COVID's the most deadly pathogen in world history or whatever it is. And you have these, you know, uppity asshole uh, independent media platforms and journalists going like, hey, it's just, you know, like us, we're not those journalists, but we, you know, we read this stuff. We go like, hey, there's a lot, of, a lot of unanswered questions that you guys are kind of glossing over. And that backlash becomes kind of palpable enough to such an extent that 
you know, whatever, the State Department, the Pentagon, what, you know, whatever, the NIH, CDC, whatever, go like, okay, uh, they're kind of on to us. You got to give them some breadcrumbs to kind of chew on for a while, you know. So the limited hangout is just give them, you know, 5% of what actually happened. So, for example, they didn't say uh, there's vaccine rollout, and then the next week they come out and go like, turns out it doesn't work. It's not effective. <laughs> they go like, it's not 99% effective. It's like 83 I was like, okay, it's like 79. And then it's like next week is, it's, it's looking like 68. And then it's like two weeks later, two weeks later, two weeks later. And then two months down the road, they go like, it's 17% effective for two weeks. After that, you're going to need a booster. And by that time, because the collective, or, you know, the collective vat of humanity has a memory of a goldfish. And you, we bring it up like, this is, this is what I was telling you a year ago. Like, this is what I'm telling you. They go like, I just, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, we're, we're. I'm standing with Ukraine now. Like, why are you talking about this? <laughs> like, you know, when are you going to let this go? I'm like, I'm not going to let it go until you apologize to me for calling me a conspiracy theorist a year ago. That's what fucking drives me crazy. And so New York Times is one of these outlets. And they go, when you show them the articles and you go, you know, they go like, look, everything I was saying came true. And then someone goes like, all right, I admit, like masks don't work. But like, what are you going to do? So you think that this New York Times article about uh, Israel having some advanced notice of this attack, you think that is limited hangout? Yes. And so in like the next three weeks, it's going to come out that Netanyahu was boots on the ground with a uh, like a, you know, a carbine. And- so because this is interesting, and I think that because Kelly and I talked about this kind of sporadically, and I'm, I was curious to hear like where he was at, because your first inclination is to go like, Oh my God! See, like this is kind of a, a a hash mark in our category, but then I go like, I don't think so. Like Let's I check our predictions. Yeah, I got I got I got I got some questions here because when the New York Times comes out with an article that says New York Times report says Israel knew about Hamas attack over a year ago, they spelled you know the IDF's plan. It was called uh, Jericho Wall, forty page, well you know, detailed everything. Here's exactly what they're going to do, and they played that. They ran it like a playbook. That's exactly what they did, right? So. Here we have their battle plan a year, a year ago, and a year after that, they do that, and everyone goes like, oh, we just had, like, no idea that that was going to happen, is. So we didn't do predictions, but I think we should get some down real quick. Yeah. Right, so uh, limited hangout of Israel. Hamas. Okay. So I don't have a comes to light. Uh, New York Times article. We've got where's our article at? We're going to document the date that the article comes out and we're going to set. I'm going to go by January one. Okay. This is going to have snowballed into looks like this article came out and I have no idea. This, it came out this week. Advanced notice turns into <laughs> moderate participation. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair, fairly worded. Massacre? Massacre? Whatever. Well, the, the, the point that I wanted to bring up is when I read that article and when Kelly said it to me, you know, something to think about is my 
first reaction, I was like a little surprised, right? I was like, wow, New York Times is saying that because that goes against the, you know, that points at a potential major fault and suggests not only either fatal incompetency or on the part of Israel or possibly even some false flagging nefariousness, which pretty significantly goes against the narrative of the U.S. political elite class narrative, which is Israel good, Palestine bad. It essentially points to the beginning of an ideological fracture between U.S. and our 51st state, which would be Israel. But then you think, because you just, that skeptic brain allows us to ask questions like, okay, stop, stop, don't, don't, don't do a victory lap just yet. Because, or, you know, does it really though? As with many of these things, you have to sometimes like start at the top and then kind of still things down by reverse engineering them with what little information you have, or at some point you have to decide, okay, I believe this to be semi-true. I've seen this enough times. So when you reverse engineer it from there, it's, is there some sort of delineation between the U.S. and possible points of contention between Israel and the U.S.? Because the point, like, the reason why I asked that question is that that New York Times article goes kind of against the narrative, which is the U.S. narrative is Israel good at all costs, right? And so you're like, okay, I thought we were unwaveringly, unquestionably supporting Israel. And the trusty you know, lapdogs in New York Times have always carried the pail for, you know, the, of water for the State Department, especially in these uh, overseas military conflicts. So I started landing out a few things. Like, okay, so what would be some possible deviations from the narrative between U.S. and Israel? So I got number one. There is a major difference between the U.S. and what Netanyahu is saying, the first thing, are saying right now is that U.S. is using their trusty old talking point, like, we need a, a two-state solution, right? How many times have you heard that? You've heard that since they were created in 48, after the war in 67, after the war in 73, and every overlapping conflict in that region you know, since then. Every, both right and left, they come out and say, like, we need a two-state solution, which means nothing, by the way. That's just something to say. It's the same thing of a politician coming out and saying, we need comprehensive, blank, insert word here, like we're focused on comprehensive blank reform, you know, education, border, you know, whatever it is. It's like, it's just, it means nothing. It's just something that politicians say. This is what we're still saying. Like we need to, we're aiming for a two-state solution. Now this is where the U.S. and Netanyahu are kind of deviating because Netanyahu is saying like, no, we're done with the two-state solution at this point. Like this is, this, they crossed the line and we're doing anything. Okay, there's two points of contention right there, right? And I'm going to bring up the point. To, you know, I'm going to explain like why I'm bringing this up. So number two, the U.S. has a little conundrum on their hands in that the leader of our 51st state, Netanyahu, had a wildly unpopular support rating before October 7th. It's even worse now. I think 80% of Israelis are blaming him for the non-response of the attacks by Hamas, right? So this is where we get into we don't have an allegiance to Netanyahu, the U.S., he has, we have an allegiance to Israel. And much like every other conflict that we get in, ourselves involved in, so take the Maidan Re Revolution in 2014 in Ukraine, it's like, no, we have an allegiance to this area. We need it as a power foothold for the America power structure in that area. Israel is super important for the U.S. because it's wholly surrounded by countries and territories completely hostile to the U.S. interests. Like, we really need that area in there, right? Now, it doesn't have to be. We're not loyal to Netanyahu. We don't need Netanyahu. He needs to do what we need him to do. 
he needs to babysit the useless eaters, you know, so business can continue as usual. And if he can't do that, we'll swap him out with someone else. It's like not a big deal, right? The same thing that we did in Ukraine with uh, ousting their lever, uh, leader in 2014 by, you know, financing and organizing the Maidan revolution, getting rid of their democratically a leader and putting in someone more sympathetic to U.S. interest, which would be, who was it, Poroshenko at that point. I think Yanukovych was the original guy. He was just a little too cozy with Russia, so we got him out of there and put in, you know, first it was Yatsi. Yatsi's our guy, I can't remember, was the interim president, and then they put in Poroshenko. Okay, number three. This is more kind of domestically related, is that the already wildly unpopular O'Biden regime didn't bank on a substantial part of their base, which would be the left, being sycophants for Palestine. I believe that to be a complete surprise to them. They were not ready for 100,000 people showing up in New York <laughs> with Palestinian flags, wearing scarves. And to take it one step further, now we also have prominent leaders for Black, for Black Lives Matter saying, like, I'm voting for Trump next time. And they go, like, yeah, man, we really miscalculated that one. So when they do this milk toast, like, we need a two-state solution, which is not what Netanyahu wants. We're like, maybe we need to get Netanyahu out of there. That is to save their own skin here domestically because we have an election coming up. Hmm. So think, something I thought of. You think short-sightedness on the part of the people that are sort of orchestrating? Because it, it is an interesting thing because I don't care one way or another. You can't pin me down and say because I support Israel – Right. All of these boxes below that decision are checked automatically for your position or because I support Hamas, well, not Palestinians, I, I guess, um, you know, I'm going to lump you into column B, right? Which you're still, you're, you're what I was referring to earlier. Like, here we are, we read the shit out of the stuff, a metric shit ton of information. We still come out the other end, like, still can't give you a strong opinion one way or the other. Like, I just have a better understanding of what's going on. Now, there's a ton of people that do have a strong opinion on far less time spent even considering it, let alone yeah. reading about it, right? Um, like that guy we saw earlier in traffic with all the <laughs> stickers on his car. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's got Israel. He's got uh, what's that Ukraine sticker. Man, he's just checking all the boxes there. It's great. Um, but, uh, you know... Could they not see, okay, we are Democratic leaders. We are leaders of the Democratic Party. What will our constituents say about this? Mm -hmm. You think that nobody ever expected that? Because let's say I'm, I'm pro-Palestinian or whatever, whatever that actually means. Yeah. Like, I'm automatically lumped in now with <clears throat> radical left-wing people mm -hmm. based on this decision, which is all it takes for most people to make right. a decision about you, right? Whereas, yeah, I get that all of the conservative Western Christian Bible belty, you know, I don't know, whatever – these folks, you know, yeah. your parents, my parents, whoever it is, yeah, um, they're all they all support Israel. Like, and right. from my perspective, uh, I grew up seeing all that, but and probably like toting that flag for a while just because your parents did, or mm -hmm. it was popular in your geography. But at a certain point, you're like, why do I think this is the right thing? Mm -hmm. You know, so you get to a point where you're like, I don't, I don't necessarily 
owe allegiance or feel any particular attachment to this particular group or entity mm-hmm. because I now realize that it was all based on, I don't probably propaganda. That Stuff that was spoon-fed, yeah. yeah. exactly. Right. So, like, how did the decision makers not think that this wouldn't cause calamity in their party? Like, we, they, like you said, Joe Biden's party, they weren't expecting that. I said the O Biden regime. Oh, did, right. <laughs> Look it up, the Transition Integrity Project. <laughs> Show you everything to know. For those of you that think that Obama's relaxing in his Martha's Vineyard coastal estate despite uh, alarming rates of global warming <laughs> threatening seafront properties. Well, it's up. The, um, I guess the to bring it back to the limited hangout is my prediction, because I, the, the one kind of, I guess, variable in bringing up those three points is and I, my, this, I'm kind of, this is conjecture at this point is I believe that they vastly underestimated of how much of their base was going to be supporting Palestine. I think that came as a surprise to Yeah, them. That's what I'm saying. Like how, how would that yeah. be the case? It, it seems like easy math. Cause you got to think about it. The Democratic party is on rocky fucking ground at this point. Cause like, were they going to run Biden again? It's like, they're, they're, they're kind of a bit of a shit sandwich. It'd be interesting to see how the next year goes. Not that I really care who the president is, but to see that much of their base be turning against them and protesting in the streets, I, I just, I'm hard pressed to believe that that was calculated into the equation when they made the decisions and made the announcements that they were, that they were all in on supporting Israel, basically, no matter what. And the reason why, I guess by prediction is I believe that this New York Times article, because I attribute nothing but nefarious attentions to anything, any mainstream media outlet, especially New York times is this is why I believe this to be that slow, that drip, 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 the limited hangout. It's like, we're starting to pave the way to turn sentiment against Netanyahu so that we can, what continue our allegiance for Israel. We don't really care who Netanyahu, the longest running prime minister at that time, like, You've served your time, and you're kind of, I don't know, you're worn out. Your batteries are going dead. Like, we need someone else in there. Like, you're, you're deviating from our narrative. You're our 51st state, and you kind of stepped out of line at this point. And so we're going to swap you out with someone else. How uh, is Israel, I mean, Netanyahu's been in government. I'm not sure if it's been the same position for a long time. Right. Right. Easily 10 years. I'm, I don't have this information directly in front of me. But, like, when I start thinking about um, democracy, uh, long-time people maintaining the same positions of power, these two things go different directions in my mind. Like, what's the political structure like that has kept him there for so long and that he's fighting to hold on to power for? Like, has he been elected over and over and over? Is that what's going on over there? Yeah, I didn't see you use your finger quotes when you say elected, but mm. <laughs> yes. I believe very much that the, any of these countries that serve at the behest of a U.S. You know, US interest overseas are very much put in place mm. by our State Department and the CIA and all the letter, three-letter agencies, the deep state, if you will. I mean, that's what we've done in Ukraine. That's what we did in almost all of South America all throughout the 70s and 80s. And here we are now. Like, we can't afford to have someone running that country that's not perfectly aligning with U.S. interests. And Netanyahu for... Why? Yep. What's that? Why? Because that continues the American, the business-as-usual model, right? We need them 
in there. They're our foothold in the Middle East. They're surrounded by countries that are completely hostile from U.S. interest. Mm-hmm. It's basically, that's why I refer to them as the, as the 51st state. So you ask, like, why? So, so here's another example. To go back to John Perkins and the confessions of an economic hitman, like, why are we so worried about who the president of El Salvador is or Chile or Panama or Nicaragua or Ecuador because we go in there, it, you know, it's usually, there's several different ways to do it. But remember that chart we looked at, and it has a strata of the power hierarchy, mm-hmm. and the IMF was up there. And the IMF and the World Bank was how that usually started, predominantly in the 70s and 80s, and I believe that we're still doing that now. Is we go in there and we say, do you remember the loose business model? <laughs> using my finger quotes there that they used. Is you go in there, the World Bank would go into, let's just say, Chile, and say, um, we'd like to give you guys a loan. So you can build that dam that you needed to generate electricity or whatever. And this will improve your structure and will make you, they call them the, um, the EDCs. It's, uh, or the LDCs, sorry, less developed countries. Okay. And so we'll do this next episode. LDCs and Kissinger are like synonymous with each other. This was like basically the foundation for his psychopathic global model is we go in there, like, here's some money for that infrastructure project that you need, and now you can get uh, electricity to this part of your country or whatever it is. They take that loan. That loan was structured in such a way that it was meant to be impossible to pay back. And so when we go to them, you know, three, four, or five years later and say, like, look, clearly you can't pay this loan back because it was specifically designed for you not to be able to. So... um, as a way of paying us back, well, how about we forgive the loan, but what we're going to do is privatize your timber industry sure. or, or your mining or whatever. So when we put in, when you get into Kissinger and the State Department and the things that they did in South America and the things that we're still doing in Ukraine and Israel, is we can't afford, once we establish that foothold in that country, so we can bring in whatever our mining companies or the timber or the gold or the oil or whatever it is, is... We need stability in that country. And if we have to have, for us to have stability in that country, like we need a leader that's going to quell any kind of dissent. Because most countries, when they see, you know, U.S. military ripping around the streets, they go like, okay, like we're not really digging this. Like this is basically colonialism all over again. And so we go to that leader after they can't pay that loan back. And we say, you know, this was the case of Allende, is he say, um, if you don't take this loan, because some of these leaders, especially in South America, said like, no, I saw what you guys did in Ecuador. I saw what you did in Nicaragua. I saw what you did in Panama. I, we're not doing that here. And that guy dies in a plane crash a week later, mysteriously. But what we do is if we have, this is what we did with the Maidan re- revolution in Ukraine, is we need someone that's sympathetic to the U.S. interests. And if that guy is not, we'll put someone in that will. And that's how we fin- like finance and orchestrate a coup. Like, we get, we go in there, you're familiar with a strategy of tension, whatever CIA tactic that we use, or we just arm the, you know, the, their adversary group, you know, such as the way we armed ISIS in Syria to overthrow Assad. So we get them to overthrow that person that's not going to align with our interests. And then we need someone, it's usually a brutal dictator like Pinochet, for example, who just goes in and, you know, murders between three and 400,000 people. We didn't murder them. They just disappeared. It's like these are the rabble-rousers. These are the people that were, you know, protesting in the streets against the guy that we were trying to get in there. 
and whatever death squads that you need to use or torture or you just straight up bury them alive, whatever you have to do, because we need stability in this country so we can have our mining project or whatever, or our oil field, whatever it is. That's the basic model. We'll get more into that next weekend when we uh, do Kissinger because it gets dark and deep. All right. Good exposition on all that. Hmm. Well-read history students. <laughs> Just scratching the surface. Oh, oh, oh.